welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and Caroline is not joining us today. But we do have a really fascinating guest that I am really excited to talk to because there's a lot to learn from her, I think. Yasmin Ongo is the author of Her Name is Night and They Come at Night, and now the book that we're talking about today, It Ends with Night, and that's Night with a K. She is a first-generation Ghanaian-American currently residing in South Carolina with her family. She served in education for nearly 20 years and works as a developmental editor. Yasmin received the 2020 Eleanor Taylor Bland Crime Fiction Writers of Color Award from Sisters in Crime and is a member of numerous crime, mystery, and thriller organizations. Welcome to Writers' Voices, Yasmin. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so how, let's just start with your kind of your journey from being a teacher mm-hmm. to writing crime thrillers. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you wouldn't consider that uh, for an English teacher who's probably scared of everything. Uh, <laughs> but I think that's why I love, uh, you know, crime thrillers and horrors and fantasy and all of those things, uh, because I know that I'm such a scary person, uh, you know, scaredy cat. Is, you know, <laughs> but um, yeah, I think when I got out of high school, I, I I didn't know the pathway to becoming published, you know, back in the day. Uh, it wasn't as easy for me. And uh, my parents being um, immigrants, you know, they creative uh, jobs is not something that they think is tangible and earns money. So uh, it's a teacher that I, you know, became uh, since I wasn't going to be able to write, which is what I did, you know, um, as a child growing up. Um, then I was going to teach it and talk about reading and, and writing my my loves. So um, it is what got me through teaching. I love um, having that discussion with the with the students and really delving into uh, the stories and the character motivation and bringing out student voice and uh, student love of reading. So uh, it's like a second uh, career for me after those 20 years and raising my kids. I thought it was time for me. There's still something that I'm missing in life, um, which was writing. It's really a way for me. It's very cathartic for me. And so um, I decided to just go back at it and, and really try to make a go of, you know, this thing that I've always loved and try to be, you know, published. I knew a little bit more about it now. So that's how I kind of veered into that. And like, I've always loved, you know, that kind of genre. I watch those things. I read those things. And so I felt like I wanted to write that as well. So were you writing during those 20 years to also, or was it really backburnered? It was really backburnered. If I, I did some writing, maybe at like the beginning um, and, you know, wrote like a, a women's fiction uh, that I tried to publish and it didn't take. And then when that didn't uh, land with anyone, then I really put it away. That was when my son was like maybe two years old. So um, I, I put it away and said, I'm going to focus on, you know, um, finishing up my degree and uh, raising, you know, my kids um, and and do that. And so that's what I did for that chunk of time while I went to school, while I was teaching and focused on that. Um, and it's when I felt like my kids were like a good age and I was really feeling um, 
really like unsettled, like, you know, something's missing, then I just, you know, that was the thing that I needed to get back to. And that was realizing my my one and only true dream at the beginning, which was, you know, becoming a writer. So how old is your son now? My son is 22 now. (laughs) So (laughs) what does he think about your success as a writer? He thinks it's cool. Um, <laughs> so I have a, a son. We, we're a blended family, but I have a son and a daughter. Um, my daughter just went um, to her freshman year in college. So both of them are gone. And he just went to grad school. And so he texted me the other day and was like, I told my, my classmates all about you. They want to meet you. So he <laughs> I'm like, I'm not cool, but thank you so much for saying that. So he me up and, and, and tries to hock my books to his classmates and his professors. <laughs> what is he studying? Um, he's studying, he's getting his master's in uh, graphic design. And uh, okay. he got his bachelor's in um, illustration and fine arts. And is your daughter following in your footsteps at all in terms of writing or... No, no. <laughs> they create a route. She is more of a of a of a drawer uh, herself. So okay. she'll, she'll like more of like anime uh, things. Um, and she's um, at school for uh, political science. She wants to um, go into pre-law and everything. Wow. Um, yeah. but, so it's interesting, though, that your son, maybe, you know, he is following an artistic career path. Mm-hmm. Maybe you you're success may have made that seem like something that he could do it might have inspired him yeah definitely you know I I don't knock my parents I understand you know it is hard to come all the way from another country and then to say yes you know to writing and it's not something that they understood you know back in in that day so uh when my kids you know were growing up and, and my son was really showing that he had some real talent in in his um his artwork that he was doing, um, I really tried to foster that and, you know, show, tell him that, you know, whatever path that he chose, even if it was a creative one, one that, um, you know, wasn't a nine to five or whatever, you know, I would fully, fully support that. And that is something that I thought about as I was, you know, picking my writing back up and I decided that I'm going to start querying my, uh, my book, Her Name is Night, at the top of 2020. I'm doing this to show my kids that, you know, you can really, if you set your mind to something and you really have a dream, you can go for it with full gusto and 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 try to make it a reality. So definitely now, you know, if I'm talking the talk with them and, and they're like, you know, trying to like, you know, kind of be lazy about, <laughs> you know, uh, getting up and doing that piece of art or, or whatever it is that they're trying to do. I'm like, hey, you got to, you know, you I'm talking the talk, you know, or walking the talk. And and so you got to listen to me because I think I know something. (laughs) Well, okay. You started querying with that book in 2020 and you have three books out. Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) Three years later. Yes. A a book a year. That is incredible. It's hard. It's hard. (laughs) That is so (laughs) impressive. (laughs) Okay. So. You decided to start writing what her name is night. Well, tell us, give her the, for anyone who has not read your book, sort of what the overall themes and characters are. Just give us a little summary. Sure. So uh, her name is night and, and just the Nina Knight 
trilogy follows uh, Nina Knight. She is an elite Ghanaian assassin for a powerful uh, secret organization called the African Tribal Council or the tribe. She is what I like to call the tip of their spear. And that's a little pun on, uh, you know, tribes in, in Ghana and Africa and all of that stuff. But she is the head of their dispatch team. Um, and, and so this group uh, is a group of very powerful and wealthy uh, people who live uh, or who are from various countries in Africa who have aligned themselves uh, to, to pull their resources and put back their, their resources and their, um, and their prestige and, and all of that back into uh, the African diaspora and, you know, rebuild all of the things throughout the centuries that, you know, were mined and taken from the African people. So just rebuilding them and, and putting, you know, that love, refilling that well. And so, you know, with every great idea and organization, they need this, you know, band of people who are going to, um, Initial, you know, to put through the things and kind of clear out the people who are not for their cause. And so that's what Nina's group does, uh, the dispatch team. They literally go and dispatch people who have been uh, decreed like, you know, they shouldn't be here because they're not for the cause or they're bad or whatever. So they, they work with a code, but they are assassins. Um, and Nina is the head of them. And she is also the younger, the youngest daughter of the Knight family. And the Knight family um, is the head of the tribe. Now, it's interesting that your heroine is an assassin. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and even, you know, yeah, she's assassinating usually for a good cause. But it's still a very much a moral gray area. Yeah. Why did you want to play in that in that arena why did you want to to have your heroine be so morally ambiguous yes well because you know that's what i believe you know that everyone is you know there isn't anyone who is inherently good and or or inherently bad and i think that a lot of us kind of work in you know those areas of gray and that's a conversation that she actually has you know with her love interest who is um a da in in the first book um and so how does an assassin you know have a relationship with you know a district attorney i don't know <laughs> <laughs> but like I tried to explore that, you know, and I wanted that challenge. It was definitely a challenge for me. And I find it really sexy and seductive when, you know, um, the protagonist has this job that is really compelling and, you're, and it makes you kind of like stop and be like, wow, I don't know if I should root for this person, but I really, you know, like what you know, this person's personality or, or whatever. And I do that with my villains too. Like my villains aren't always going to be, you know, totally bad and, and this kind of way. They don't typically have the, like the typical stereotypes of a villain. There are people who um, you're like, you know what, I can understand why they're mad or why they want to do this thing, but you know, they're a villain. So you can't like, you know, root for them in the end. But I wanted that for for my protagonist, for her to have a job. I'm like, you know, there are jobs that people have out there that are unlikable, but they have to do this job because that is their living. And and she, um, Nina, thinks she doesn't really ponder too much on am I doing the right thing or not? Uh, she's conditioned herself. This is just a job. 
And so I'm going to do this job. And if I'm going to do this job, I'm going to do it well. So her thing is more, I'm going to be the best at the job that that I have. And she's able to compartmentalize. Um, and she's also able to have empathy and she knows right from wrong. And, and when things aren't kosher, uh, which is, you know, some of the conflicts that she has uh, throughout the trilogy. But I really wanted to have a compelling character who was in a position that makes the reader kind of question, I don't know if I should, they're always, you know, having that question. But through her journey, through her her character and how she interacts and how she uh, meets new people um, that bring out different aspects of her, I was hoping to be able to to get the reader on her side and root for her. <laughs> well, I think I that definitely happens. You're definitely rooting for her. At the same time, there's and also, you know, the her backstory and how she became who she is. You know, you have there's sympathy for her in what she went through and that, you know, there really are people out there who <laughs> maybe don't deserve to live, but, you know. Exactly. <laughs> That's how I want it to be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Now, are there actually any organizations, secret or otherwise, in Africa where people from, people of power from various countries are joined together to try and improve life for everyone. Yeah. You know what? I don't know if there are any like, you know, official ones, but, you know, sometimes I see, you know, on um, on Instagram or whatever that there are, you know, very wealthy um, entrepreneurs who are, um, you know, doing the same things that, you know, I discuss in my in my book. And I didn't see that a couple of years ago. And I was like, that's so cool because I definitely would have like been following them. So I think now I'm a little bit more in tune to like looking to see who's out there and who's doing what. Um, not definitely in the capacity of, of the tribe. And I guess if there was, they probably would not let us know. Yes. But, <laughs> but like, I just but I think that that's really cool. And 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 the things that, you know, we have, um, you know, Ghana, especially, but Africa in general, a couple of years ago, we had like the big, the big return. And so they want everyone to return back to their roots and return back, to, you know, find, you know, through their genealogy or whatever, find where they're from and come on back to um, Africa. You know, you're welcome back to come be with your people, be with your tribe. I mean, it is a wonderful thing. And even though I have always grown and known, you know, where my family is and the various parts, I mean, we have family that's in Nigeria and Liberia and, you know, um, Ghana, so many countries, you know. That. Really? So there was a lot of movement of people, you know, because I, I don't know, I guess I had this vision that, you know, Africa was very tribal and everyone stayed in their tribe and it was in this one place. But you're, mm -hmm. you're saying that's not the case. Yeah, no, that's not that's not the case at all. I mean, there are you know tribes um, and, and they're very, you know, we, you know, the Khan and the Ashanti, which, you know, we are a part of. But like, you know, uh, we'll have like my my great grandfather um, is from um, Nigeria and his parents are, you know, Nigeria and uh, Liberian. And so um, and then we've got, you know, people in Benin. And so, you know, just, you know, they migrate, you know, um, and they follow whatever it is that, you know, they're following. And 
so you'll and and even today you know they'll travel to other countries and and create families there and so yeah they they there are you know migrations and people and everybody so even even me you know I don't know and I learned this you know when when I'm talking to my mom and my mom will just happen to drop oh you know my such and such is you know was born here and and I'm like well I never knew that in all my years mom. <laughs> it's always something new and so and I and I love it and so yeah we definitely always welcome you know anyone to to come back and and to learn you know where they may have come from and try to trace their roots so it's 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 a wonderful thing to know and and all of that rich you know tradition and all of the the different cultural things that you know each of the tribes represent and they do even to this day even though it's more ceremonial um things like that it's it's, it's a wonderful thing yeah so you've been to africa I have. I lived there for a couple of years when I was young, um, and then I've been back uh, visiting. Okay. And I'm back. My mother says we have to go back to see my grandmother. But uh, uh, yeah. yes. Do you have you been to a number of different countries or mostly Ghana? Just mostly Ghana. Mostly Ghana. Mm-hmm. And did you? What brought your parents here in the first place to the states in the first place? You know, what what would attract somebody to make that move now? Yeah, it would be school, most school and, and, you know, like what everybody says uh, from any country, uh, even European countries, uh, a new way of life, uh, living and things like that. Um, And so mostly uh, when when we um, and I'm not I mean, we're so we're not a monolith, so I'm not sure about everybody, but right (laughs) that I, you know, all of my aunties and uncles and, and friends that um whose parents have come it's always been to go to school and so they will finish second secondary school and then they will um come to either the US or to Europe um you know England to go to university um and so my parents came decided to come to to the US to Washington DC to go to Howard University so that's wow. where they attended and they uh, met each other and fell in love and had me so. <laughs> okay, so they are both from Ghana, mm-hmm. but met in the U.S. But met in the U.S. Yeah, yes, because yeah. there are um, there are pockets and and big huge communities. So we have a a big huge community in that Washington D.C. Maryland area, uh, Virginia area, um, and they're everywhere else in big city populations. Um, even here in South Carolina, there's not as big as a group. Um, so, but, but when I moved here, but now it's getting bigger. And so now I can find like some restaurants who will, like serve the food because I don't want to cook it all the time. Ah, so That's tell I, me a little bit about Ghana. How, what makes it unique? You know, what, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, everything, I, I mean, I love, I mean, it's always hot there. Well, it's <laughs> mostly hot and humid. Um, so I get that kind of weather here in, um, in in South Carolina, but I mean it's beautiful. Accra, which is the capital, is is bustling even more so now, and 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 much more you know modernized than I think the last time that I had been. Um, and my grandmother, she lives you know they have compounds, and so um, 
we we like you can you can marry and whatever but mostly the family stays in on the same compound and they have like various houses within the compound and so my grandmother has you know her house and then my uncles and their family have like their houses maybe on the compound my aunt she relocated back um several years ago and so she lives on aburi mountain which is the mountain that um aninye and nina are from um, so that's a little shout out to my aunt and it's lush and beautiful and vibrant. It's like a rainforest. Um, the food there is wonderful. I remember like in the night, in the evenings, there would always be uh, vendors that will, you know, go out and they'll sell um, kelawilly, which is like cut up plantain. I don't know if you've ever had like fried plantain. Sure. Or, yeah. Okay. So it's like like really small, like fried plantain with like ginger and all these seasonings. Um, and then you eat it with like peanuts. So you just get that from the vendor and you just go. And I just love that and had like soda. And when I was there, they would have like soda um, in the, the bottles, like Sofanta or something like that. So it was it was really cool. And then and, and I just remember just a quick story, like walking down. It was at night and, and they don't really well, they didn't have like a whole lot of street lights. So it was really dark when it got dark. And um, on the sides of the roads is where they would have like the gutters. So and it's open gutter. And so I like fell inside and scraped my leg really bad because Whoa. I just I didn't stay in the middle and I kind of veered off and fell in the gutter. So <laughs> <laughs> so that's something, you know, that I remember. Um, but yeah, it, it was wonderful and people were nice. And it was, um, you go there now and you can go to the markets, um, you know, in the city and you just, you just have this wealth of food always. So I'm a big food person. I'm always talking about food and food is in my books, uh, probably because I'm hungry all the time. Uh, so <laughs> you, you say there's mountains, are there, and a jungle, some, there's, there's jungle, jungle. Yes, there's um, there's plains. So like when you see like the safari, mm -hmm. those are so it just depends on the region. If you're in a more populated area, then, you know, you'll have um, you'll, you'll you know, it'll look very it'll look like, I, I don't know, like a savanna or something like that. Um, and the then elephants and giraffes and zebras and gazelles and they, they are not in the more populated area. No. So. But yeah. So just like here, if you, you know, we're like in Montana or something, that's where you'll see most of like bison and things right, like that. Right. So it just depends where you are. Um, and you'll, you know, you'll see an occasional like monkey, uh, you know, flying around or whatever, like you would a raccoon here, whatever the, you know, the easier animals are to have. But you're not going to have like a lion or whatever walking through. No, no. But there are in the country and out. But in they the... are in if you, you know, if you go out in the more less, you know, den less densely populated areas, if you go into the mountains, then you will definitely come across, you know, those animals uh, that are there that, um that are indigenous to that area. Um, yeah. Okay. So when you, um, one, one of the things that kind of, what, as I was reading this, I, it made me think about how is anybody truly altruistic or is everybody in some sense, even if they're trying to do good, there's also, you know, like you said, there's, it's ambiguous that every nobody's completely good, completely evil. And so the situation in It Ends With Night has to do with a mine uh, mm -hmm. in a kind of a rural mine in Tanzania. Mm -hmm. And where is that? Where is Tanzania exactly? 
you mean aside from it being in um in on the African continent? Yeah, like c- compared, is it near Ghana? Is it is I'm um, I'm sorry, I'm very no, not good at geography okay. in Africa, but okay. no, it's it's not it's not near it, but I mean it's I mean like it's it's gonna be you know some hours to get to it, and it's so like it's so vast and everything like that. Um. But yeah, like, yes, uh, the mindset, and this is also totally, you know, made up uh, from my mind. So the way I, you know, wrote that whole mind system, I don't, you know, how they have, you know, reformation or reformation, sorry, of their mining system, um, they've already, they already have something established. And so as I was thinking of, you know, my story, I was just thinking of in in Nina's world, um, this thing is happening because there it is a big thing in in Africa in in a lot of you know those countries um where you know they're we're mining for gems right we have diamonds resources Africa has so many um different uh um materials minerals and things like that that are mined for like our iPhones and our cars and and all these other things and the same thing with like the Asian with Asian countries and and things like that um and so my 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 question to myself was well what happens if you have like these you know little towns who's really speaking for them because everybody wants money right and so if you um, and it even happens here if you're thinking about if you own land right and and someone some big you know company comes and says hey we want to you know buy your land are they giving you the best deal if the government is involved is it you know a government that is really for you and wants you to get the best possible deal or or are they just trying to get their cut and and then they don't care you know about the little person and so that's what i was really trying to to think about was what happens when you have all of these you know entities that are trying they say they're trying to do the right thing but they all have their personal interests including those that are in you know that little village you know they have they want what they want, but then they also have, you know, limited education in how this thing goes. So do they trust or do they stick with, you know, what they think they know? How does it all work out? And so, yeah, that's, that, that's the big question that, that I wanted to kind of explore and I, you know, in the story, which I didn't totally answer. Um, you know. <laughs> well, there is no answer. Is there really? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. How much research did you do on, on, sort of the situation with gem mining in Africa today? Oh, I did a whole lot. I watched documentaries, looked online, um, you know, read read some books on like what's been going on, uh, the types of gems, um, definitely with conflict diamonds and, and that, what's going on with that, um, how the whole process works in terms of, you know, when someone happens to find something that is valuable on their land or wherever they are and and how and there's so many different ways and all the countries are different in how, you know, they they process that and and how you have to, you know, go find, you know, someone to get it. And oftentimes it's, you know, um, people who are outside of the country who are making offers and, you know, it's not an educated um, offer that, you know, that the that the villager who met or the farmer, you know, they just kind of go and, you know, um, uh, trust that, you know, the, everybody is being honest and then they're giving up their rights to this this area when they could keep it. And instead of I think what people would like to drive towards is 
keeping and owning the the land that you have and then selling the product you know right, so that right. All, that's the thing i think eventually everybody wants and that's what they're actually striving for even in this book is keep the thing but sell it just like anybody else would right um farmers here you know they have their land they keep they sell the product but they keep the land um and um our owners and are responsible for that land and and so it was i mean it the the research could go on and on at some point i had to stop myself <laughs> Because I was just like, wow, like this, and you know, and it's something that makes, can make you upset because you're like, man, they work hard. It's not easy mining. Even when we think about like the mines here in like West Virginia and stuff, right? And coal mines and stuff. It's not easy. It's dangerous work. Um, people are, you know, dying and putting themselves on the line for for these things that they are practically giving away. Um and uh, so I just really wanted to kind of like, you know, shine a little light on that, that, you know, there are people out there that really, you know, are are, are giving their all for something that they should rightfully own and, and ha- be the ones that uh, receive all the benefits, but they're not. So I found it really fascinating that in this story, um, you've got all these different players. So you've got the government of Tanzania, you've got the local government, you've got the kind of the tribal chiefs, you've got someone kind of an activist who has more education, who's learning to, who's speaking up for the farmers, you know, for Mm -hmm. the people who own the land. And then you've got the, the tribal council with Nina as the representative of that and so and another a political that there's a politician who's a representative of that mm-hmm. as well and then you've got the corporations who are wanting to buy it and that's so many kind yeah. of people vying for a piece of the pie mm-hmm. is that do you think realistic as I mean it sounds like it probably is the way it really works that there's all those people vying for it you know I I don't I would think that there are mostly them I don't know if they have some something like you know the tribe or the right right um but I definitely think um I definitely know that you know you know the government would be involved because there are taxes that need to be paid to the government you know for for those sales um and then those outside entities I don't know who brings those entities in right um whether it is the um the government but somebody's got to tell them that this thing is here um and and so like there's that liaison whoever that may be and then yes definitely you know the city or the village and then there are little like tribal factions within the village um because um in africa well i know for in ghana you know we do still have um tribal tribe chiefs and things like that of villages who still inform and and you know work hand in hand with the government um to give their voice um to to whatever it is that's going on so there is that that um that area of of governing within tribe we keep our tribal system and then we have you know the the democratic um um government and they both work, you know, hand in hand, or at least they get, um, you know, the, um, what am I trying to say? They get like their thoughts 
of the chiefs and whether they actually they end up going for it or not. I think they might be allowed to vote on some things. I'm not 100%. But like, so all of that is still something that, you know, they all kind of still talk about. And it's a lot of people. It, it is, is a lot of interests, a lot of conflicting interests sometimes. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And you, you walked kind of a fine line. You know, we have, you know, in the West, we, we have this um, maybe assumption that a lot of the governments in Africa are corrupt. Mm. And so you, you walk kind of a fine line with that in that, yes, they maybe they are, but maybe they really are do care about the people. And how do you know and how can you tell? Mm. Um, can you can you address that a little bit about do you feel like there is a lot of corruption in in governments in Africa? And how can you tell which ones are and which ones aren't? Right. Well, so I'm going to say that I, I Afri- it, it is not something that is um, there's government corruption everywhere. There's government, yeah. corruption, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah. so when I'm saying it about, you know, about Africa, I'm not saying it as, you know, that's not anything new. And that's something that we see in our own backyard. Um, so because I know that uh, even when even in the tribe, there are bad people within the tribe. So there's no organized, you know, thing um, that uh, that everybody is going to be for the right cause. There's always going to be like a bad apple in there. And so I think that that is true for for all, you know, government um, offices and in and all organized organizations. There's always someone who's against what the overall and it's just whoever happens to be in power at that time, whoever has enough pull are the ones that will have, you know, um, whatever it is that they want um, happen. If it's the good guys, then good things are going to happen. If it's the bad guys, then, you know, bad things are going to happen. And, of course, so, whether it's good or bad depends on your perspective, too. Exactly, <laughs> exactly right? Right, because it will be good for some people always. Yes, uh, yeah. That's, that's the thing. And so um, it, so in talking about that at Tanzania, yeah, I definitely tried because I definitely didn't want to say that, Oh, their government, you know, is is corrupt because I, I have no idea, and I'm not going to say that uh, because I don't think that they are. I'm sure that there are people within it that are self-serving, but that's everywhere. Um, and so I I just really wanted to just set up, you know, um, you know this this conflict where you know Nina is going to have to go in and and try to maneuver this government who is going to think about the government first because they have to think about themselves and the people as a whole. Everybody has to think about, you know, themselves and, and, um, and that's just the way of life. And so she's got to try to like figure out how best to move in that situation. You're listening to Writer's Voices and our guest today is Yasmin Ongo, author of It Ends With Night. Um, why don't you read a little bit from the book for us? Okay. All right. It's going to be um, a mission. She strode down the blue and white hospital corridor with purpose. AirPods tucked in her ears, bopping her head slightly to an imaginary beat for the four nurses dotting about the nurse's station. They were so engrossed in preparing for the start of what would be a busy day of recovery patients who'd undergone outpatient services that they barely looked up. Still, she sent them an airy wave as she passed by their station, pushing her cart loaded with linens, blankets, socks with the rubberized soles, and cleaning supplies 
at the very bottom, just in case one happened to look up. They wouldn't. According to her maroon top and khakis, she was with the environmental services and thus didn't warrant that much attention, especially at the start of the day. Not getting any attention was just what she wanted. Even though this was a solo job, she would never be alone. Network was always right there, an eye in the sky to provide cover when needed and a way out, of, and a way out if trouble hit. Nina remembered the one time when Network had not been there. Couldn't think about that day now. There was a job to do, a dispatch to perform. She counted off the rooms as she went by. First, first one was occupied. The tan curtain behind the glass lighting door pulled for patient privacy. Second and third rooms not, their curtains open ready to receive their next patients. Through her comms, the network operative provided an update. The nurse has done her final check, shouldn't be another for four hours, but the, but the doctors will likely visit before that time is up. Four hour rounds, depending on how many recovering patients and how great the patient's needs. There were only three right now and it was still early, so the nurses would be in no hurry to get to their sleeping patients if all remained quiet, though they knew it wouldn't. Four hours seemed like an eternity. If all was successful, she'd only need five minutes. Nina ran through the plan. Leave cart on the outside of the room, right outside the sliding glass door to obstruct anyone who attempted to come in. Get in, go to the IV where fluids and medicine were being dispensed. Confirm the mark. Dispatch confirms the mark. Get out before the medication hits and the monitoring device alerts the nurses that something is amiss with their patient. Why housekeeping? Nina was asked during the logistics meeting. Why not go in as a nurse? Because the nurses know the members of their team, Nina had responded. They'll notice a new face. The simplest way is always the better way. Witt had once told Nina. She'd learned throughout the years that he was absolutely right. Simple lies were easy to remember. Simple planning was easiest to execute and left opportunity for modification should any be needed. There was pushback. They might know how house they might know about housekeeping too, less likely than a nurse. Plus, nurses are assigned to specific patients. If a new one attempts to enter a patient's room they're not assigned to, it could raise suspicion. Housekeeping always has people coming and going. Not for the first time, Nina wondered if Witt had said the cover was, if Witt had said that the cover was environmental services, whether his people, now her people, she supposed, would have questioned him as they'd just done her. Likely not. But she continued with her run through as if they hadn't phased her. Environmental services it was. The cart slowed upon approaching the sliding glass door. The nurses are otherwise engaged, Network said, and the doctor, not in yet, still early, Network said, but be quick. Five minutes was what Nina had planned for, in and out. No extra steps, no pauses. She wheeled the cart until it was right outside the door and pulled the sliding glass do door open to slip her body through, positioning the cart so that it was just in front of the door. A fail safe in case one of the nurses or someone else decided to check the patient again, though the network operative tracking the monitors would alert her to anyone coming near the room. She closed the door behind her with a muted thud. Once inside, she made sure the curtain obscured any view from the outside. She assessed the room. 
watch her time, the Mark's form was beneath the white knitted blankets and asleep. Hadn't noticed he was no longer alone. The narcotics the nurse had administered doing her their job. The monitor reflected a jagged line of heartbeats, strong and steady. The IV bag was full. The blood pressure cuff made a suction sound as it took its reading. All would kick out to the nurse's station for the nurses to read there. From her pocket, she pulled out the syringe and stepped to the man so she could see him clearly. He was snoring slightly and she leaned over a bit to get his face fully in her line of vision. Confirming, Network said, one second later, you're a go. Only a second for facial recognition to confirm the face she peered down was a match. The doctor who performed intolerable acts on his patients back home in Uganda, who'd left a long stream of traumatized victims in his wake from his disgusting deeds, forcing patients who couldn't afford his services to pay in ways that humiliated and degraded them, then absconding to New Jersey to live a comfortable life and tend to his own health needs. This one, a gallbladder surgery by doctors unlike him. If only he'd lived by the same Hippocratic oath to do no harm, hadn't left victims dead or scraping their lives back together again, then perhaps, perhaps the tribe wouldn't have had to chase him across continents for his dispatch. With one hand, she flipped the cover of the needle's tip. With the other, she pulled back the blanket at his side, exposing his arms where the pick was was attached, tape wrapped around his elbow to hold it into place. She inserted the syringe's tip into the port of the catheter and pushed the atropine into the vein, into the open line in his vein. She replaced the needle's top, pulled the blanket back exactly as she found it, and was at the door when the monitor's beep, beeps began accelerating. She pushed her cart out of the way and shut the door, careful to keep her face from the cameras she knew were there just as she'd done when she'd arrived, and wheeled the cart around the other side of the U-shaped hall so she wouldn't double back past the side of the nurse's station she'd passed earlier, because she didn't need them remembering her now. They were too busy grouping around the monitor as it screeched wildly that one of their patients was in serious trouble. She heard the rushed alarm tone of the nurses calling for a doctor. She was already down the hall and heading toward the elevator, doors open wide, thank you network, and was pressing G when she heard feet pounding away from her toward the Mark's room as the blaring beep, 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 beep became one long beep. No stops, no slowdowns, indicating his heart had beat so furiously he'd gone into cardiac arrest and they weren't going to be able to pull a crash cart around in time to charge his already taxed heart enough to start up again. Next trip he'd be making was to patient transport right down to the morgue. On her way out, she dropped the used syringe and the gloves she'd worn the entire time in a red hazardous materials container. The irony of what she'd done with the syringe not lost on her. The main doors of the hospital closed behind her as she, sands the wig, the non-prescription glasses, the maroon shirt, all discarded at various locations on her way down, turned right at the street corner, heading toward the bus stop per the plan. She slipped her hands in the pockets of her khakis and said in a deceptively carefree voice, 
that's all, folks. <laughs> and that was Yasmin Ongo reading from It Ends With Night. Thank you, Yasmin. You write a lot of action scenes in here. There's, um, you know, this type of action. There's some really intense fights. How do you do that? I mean, do you know martial arts? Have you done this fighting? How do you write it so descriptively about it? Oh, thank you. Um, I don't know martial arts. I have a friend who knows martial arts, so I'll ask her uh, when, you know, if there's something that I want to, you know, do specifically, like, oh, I want someone, you know, to, to I want to hurt somebody's liver or something like that. So she'll give me, like, something that will do, like, a liver shot. Um, and uh, when it comes to uh, guns and things like that, I have another friend who is in law enforcement. Um, and so he'll tell me, I'm like, I, I want, you know, this, I want her to, you know, be able to make a really big hole or, or whatever. And so he'll give me suggestions. Um, then I'll look up the, the things that he suggested and then kind of figure out, you know, how they put it together and do things like that. I'm I'm very allergic to exercise. And <laughs> so so you won't catch me, you know, out there, even though my friend has said, you should come and like come into a, you know, Taekwondo class with me. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm already catching hives. No, thank you. Um, <laughs> you know, so I'll do so anything she tells me I'll go and I'll look it up on YouTube and, and, and see it in action um, and different like fight moves that I want to see. I'll, I'll do that in action. And I really I take some time. I write it out and then I try to envision it in my head. So it's like a running movie in my head. And at times I have been known to enlist um, family members to actually act out that scene with me. And so I've had my kids hold like their finger to my head like a gun. Um, <laughs> tried to like you know there's a you know a moment where i think this is in the second book where you know nina is um being held captive and there's a gun to her head and, and her hands are like behind her back and i was trying to figure out how she's going to do that and disarm them and so like my daughter uh, who's always game for that the one who's a freshman now i was like amari will you come and help me with this thing and she was like okay and so she's standing there with you know her finger to my forehead and i'm kneeling in front of her and i like went through that scene with her and um my my son like walked by and saw us and he stopped and then he was like never mind and he just, <laughs> like, never mind i'm not even gonna ask so so yeah so i will actually like kind of go through as much as i can the things to make sure that what i'm writing makes sense um actually makes sense and then it also like reads like it makes sense that the that the reader can actually picture it and be there too Oh, cool, cool. Um, when you started writing, did you think it was going to be a series or were you writing a single book to begin with? Yeah, so the first book, um, Her Name Was Night, was uh, was a single because at that that moment, I couldn't even imagine. I was like, it's going to be hard getting this one book, I, you know, to even like say hey, it should be a series but I mean even as I finished writing it I always thought to myself like oh I love Nina so much and her world and and the people that she surrounds herself with that I wouldn't mind you know writing about them for for a long time to come there's just so much that you know that can be explored not just with Nina but with you know her parents and how the tribe you know came to be and even with you know her best friend Kegel and all this other stuff in Georgia you know um so when we uh, started shopping, when my um, agent um, submitted Her Name is Night, 
and they were talking about, and she was just like, you know, just consider like if they want like a two book deal, it might be a, um, you know, a series, just kind of think about that. So when we started talking to editors, uh, that's what they were saying was that they wanted it to be like more of a series. So what do I think about that? So I just started thinking about, oh, that's great because now she can have like a full arc. And I just had to like, you know, change the ending um, in the first one and, and stretch some things out so that the, you know, the threads would, you know, be there. I could Not like, everything was tied up in a neat little bow. Right. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, I can like, you know, pull things out and, and really delve into how uh, Nina will address, you know, some of these things that were brought up in the first in the first book. And how did you find your agent? Um, through uh, um, querying. Uh, so I just queried her like I queried all the um, almost 100 agents um, that I that I tried to to see if they would like consider representing me. And I got a whole bunch of rejections, nearly a hundred rejections um, before I finally heard from Melissa who wanted to speak to me. And um, so I started querying in January of 2020 and um, was sending out batches and batches and um, was really wishing, you know, like, you know, nobody likes me because oh. all the I mean, I was nearly about to quit. Um, and then I finally heard from her maybe towards the end of May. Wow. How long did you spend writing the book before you and how did you know when you were ready to send it out to agents? Um, yeah, so I, I so I started really thinking about it in 2010 um, and. I just, and it took me all that time, um, another like eight or seven years, seven or eight years to like really uh, decide what I wanted to do with um, with Nina. There were very, there were different iterations of her and, and how I wanted to present her world. I actually started sitting down and writing it maybe towards the end of 2018 and, and, um, and decided in 2020, I have to be done and ready and it's got to be polished enough so that in 2020, January, I am going to start submitting this thing. Um, and then I just like, you know, through between work and, and all of this and raising kids and family and everything, I wrote. Uh, so in, in about a year, you know, really in 2019, but I, I started just, you know, um, thinking about it hard, hard um, in 2018. So, so Nina was living in your head for since 2010. Yes, did she, she start out as an assassin or did she start well, out well, as something she, else? Thank you. Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> she was always going to be um, someone who was, you know, on the other side of law. Um, I think at first I had her. She was going to be like the top, like the, you know, the the head honcho um, of an organized, um, you know, crime. Um, and they were going to be organized crime. It was going to be like the mob, you know, ah. and and then and she even had a different name and everything. And then it kind of changed because I was like, you know, I don't want, want I don't want it to be necessarily that I want them to have like, you know, a, a goal and not necessarily a self-serving goal, but like a, a goal, because I also wanted to highlight my culture um, and 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 do and talk about my culture and, and, and present my culture in a different light. Um, that, you know, typically people would see uh, Ghanaians, Af people from Africa or third world countries, as some people like to say, um, 
I, I wanted to present them in, in a different way. And so, and, and I, and I really wanted the organization that she was in to have like meaning because I knew that I was going to have her have a, you know, a position that was going to be hard to, to, to stomach, um, and to really set yourself to. So, um, so yeah. Wow. So, and then you start writing the book and initially it's, it's going to be, and you give yourself a hard deadline and it sounds like you've, stuck to it so Mm -hmm. does that mean you were writing every day did you have like a I'm going to write so many words every day yeah no the the book just really you know it's different when you write without a deadline and write without any expectations it was so much more freeing and the book just poured out of me and I know uh, people probably don't like to say that when they're struggling because let me tell you I struggle now my second (laughs) my fourth all of these, you know, subsequent books, it's a struggle. But the first the first book was not a struggle because I was so, you know, I had remember I had had that 20 year, you know, hiatus. And um, and I was so excited to get back to it. That and, and I knew this story. I had spent all these like seven years really formulating this story um, and was so excited to to write this thing that it just like poured out of me. And any chance that I got, which was mostly in the evenings when when the kids were asleep and I didn't have any um any interruptions, then I just, you know, wrote the thing. I don't write in order. Um, I write whatever the scene is that is, you know, that comes to me and that I'm excited about, you know, um, at that time. So, so I don't, uh, yeah, I don't write in order. I just write, I just write them however, oh, I feel like, you know, this today. And so that's what I'll write. I feel like it, it sounds better when it, it's something that I really, really want to write. And I didn't write every day. Um, it's just whenever I really, really felt like writing. And then when I did feel like writing, it would be, you know, a lot. It tends to be a higher word count um, because I'm so invested in that particular scene at that time or scenes. Okay. So if you're not writing in order, do you have the, the whole thing plotted out ahead of time so you know what scenes you have to write? Or are you just like, oh, okay, I think this is going to happen somewhere. And then you stitch it together at the end. I, well, I definitely stitch it together <laughs> at the end. Um, so, you know, each scene pretty much, well, I do have an idea. So I'm not a, a, a big plotter because I, to me, when I plot a lot and when I know the story too much, it becomes boring to me. I like to, you know, be surprised. And and um, and I know sometimes that sounds a little flighty or whatever, but it really if I do too much planning and that even goes with vacations, you can't have me plan a vacation. And I barely planned my wedding because I just <laughs> in my pants and I don't want to be bothered with logistics and things like that. So I'll have an overarch, you know, like an overall idea. Um, the most plotting that I'll do is I will write like a line, one line or whatever for all the scenes that I know I want um, for sure that are going to be in there. And then I'll, those are the scenes that I'll like be working on. And then as I'm driving or I might be sleeping or eating, always eating, whatever, another <laughs> scene will come to me and then I'll just like jot that down. And so where it'll fit, I'm not too sure. So I typically, that's how I do. You'll just see like what, and I think they call that like headlight out, headlight outlining, where you're just like putting one line in of, you know, whatever scenes, chapters that you're going to have. And then 
And then afterwards, then I'll go back and kind of stitch and make sure everything is like seamless together. And I work in Scrivener because that's the easiest place for me to write in scenes rather than in Word. Um, and I'll revise in Word. Interesting. Yeah. That's a fascinating process. That's it's definitely different. It's not like most most authors. But do you know how it's going to end when you start the story? Do you know how it's going to end? Yeah, for the most part, I know how it's going to end. I I don't know like the very very specifics like exactly how it's going to end, but I know that this person is going to you know to die. How this person dies, I have an idea, but I don't know because as I'm writing, maybe some maybe you know the character tries something new, and I'm like, oh okay, well they're going to die this way instead of this way, or you know whatever the case is. So um, so so that's how I I typically uh go. I I. Definitely have, you know, I know how the thing is going to end. It's the getting there that, you know, that takes me some time. And um, and I'm a I'm one who thinks for a long time. I like to marinate on my my um, my story and kind of hash out all of my issues before I sit down and write it, uh, because I don't want to start writing it. And then I'm like, oh, my gosh, I like what is this thing that I've just, this, you know, come across and whatever, whatever. I have to really know what is motivating my characters and, and how they're going to be, how they're going to behave prior to sitting down and actually writing it. So you do a lot of character development, but yes. not a lot of plotting before you Not write. Right. That's yeah, so I, I like interesting. You know your characters. Your characters describe your story. For the editing process, are you editing scene by scene or do you wait until you have it all stitched together and then go back and do the editing? I wait until I have it all stitched together. Um, and then I go back and do the editing um, and I'll edit in Word. And so I'll go from the very beginning, you know, to the end so that I make sure that all of my scenes are seamless and everything is moving the plot. And then if I, I tend to overwrite, too, so I'll have a whole lot more stuff. Um, my my editing is me cutting down a whole lot of work. <laughs> I, I write a whole, I just write whatever, whatever, whatever. And then I'll go back later and like make it look nice and, and trim it up. And that's what my editors always have to tell me is you got to cut, 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 because I will write like over a hundred thousand words. Um, and then I got to cut, you know, 15 to, to 20,000. And I'm like, <laughs> but I have. To. Well, I have um, more questions, but we're out of time. So, oh, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. Her <Monica>. name. <laughs> So I guess we'll just have to continue with your next book. So <laughs> you've been listening to Writer's Voices. So happy to have you with us today, Yasmin. And we always end with the quote. And one of the main themes in the book to me has to do with vengeance and forgiveness. And so I have a quote from Josh Billings. There is no revenge so complete as forgiveness. Ooh, I like that. I thought that fit for this Good for one. this book. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you and see you all next week on Writer's Voices. Thank you.